24. If you'll turn with me, Matthew 5, reading a verse or two, and then Luke 24. We're continuing in our series based on Dr. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And uh, I would urge you to read that book, of course, and we're following it tonight in one of the chapters there about the Bible's historical reliability. We actually began to talk about this in a sense last week when we talked about the interface of science and the Bible, and we're talking more about that tonight. We're going to read two verses here in Matthew 5 and then in Luke 24. Jesus speaking in Matthew 5 at verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then in Luke 24, Jesus, one of his resurrection appearances, and he's speaking to the disciples there in in Luke 24, beginning at verse 44, he said to them, Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. You can't take the Bible literally. That's the objection that we're dealing with this week. And I would put it more maybe in in this way. What people mean when they say that is you can't trust what the Bible says. To put it in more expanded form, The Bible is not entirely trustworthy because some of it, maybe most of it, they would say, is scientifically impossible or historically unreliable or culturally regressive. That's the objection that we're dealing with tonight as we come to God's Word. And as I said last week, we looked at the issue of science. This week, we want to look at the question of the Bible's historical reliability and the kind of cultural objections that rise because of the Bible and some of the things that it says. So we want to look at those in our first two points, our first two main points, and then finally come back to ask, where do we get assurance of Scripture's entire trustworthiness? And so we want to take these two objections that uh, come from this view. Many people who listen to the secular media have adopted the view that the Bible is an historically unreliable collection of legends and myths and things like that. And you might have heard over the past 20 years or so the group of scholars who have met in a forum called the Jesus Seminar. We've referred to this from time to time over the years. This group has whittled down the biblical material, the Bible text, to a very small portion which they assert is the only historically accurate 
apart and reflects the true teachings of the historical Jesus. And we would say that they are very wrong. Or maybe many of you, of course, have heard about or read the Da Vinci Code or know something about the so-called Gnostic Gospels. And people buy into the ideas that what the Bible teaches about Jesus is purely fictitious or written hundreds of years after the fact. So, in terms of the Bible's historical reliability, our first point, what are some reasons under this point that the gospel accounts should be considered as historically reliable? And Tim Keller goes through three of these, and I'm going to follow his outline in the chapter of the book at this point, on this first point. And the first reason he gives is that the timing of the gospels is too early for them to be legends. The canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written at the latest, after the death of Christ, 40 to 60 years after his death. At the very latest. Paul's materials, his epistles were written probably 15 to 25 years after the death of Christ. So, the biblical accounts of Christ's life were circulating within the lifetimes of hundreds who had been present at the events of Jesus' ministry and in His life. For example, we read at the beginning of the the Gospel of Luke, where Luke sets forth what he's planning to do in his gospel. And we see what he says here about what he's going to write. He says in verses 1 and 2, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So, Luke claims that he got his account of Jesus' life from eyewitnesses who were still alive. They were there. Listen to how the Apostle Paul refers to eyewitnesses who were still alive and who could, if you track them down, who could vouch for the truth of what he writes. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15. And in beginning, let me just pick up the account in verse 3. Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. He's going to recount the very fundamentals of the faith. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Some have died. Now, what does that tell us about the historical reliability of the biblical texts? Well, you can't write these kind of things in a document designed for public reading unless there really were surviving witnesses, witnesses who could confirm what you were saying. Do you see how this historical reality refutes the ideas that are behind the materials like the Da Vinci Code? The Gospels were not some dreamed-up legend that 
slowly developed over hundreds of years after the time of Christ, and then finally evolved into the form that we have them in our Bibles hundreds of years after the fact. It just doesn't square with what we find here. No, these were eyewitnesses' accounts which preserved the words and the deeds of Jesus in great detail. Think of this not only in terms of Jesus' supporters, but also in terms of eyewitnesses who were not necessarily supporters or believers, bystanders, government officials, even actual opponents to Christ and what He taught. If there had been in the gospel accounts embellishments and falsehoods, wouldn't these witnesses who didn't have a vested interest in in these things, wouldn't they or their children, who certainly would have been told about such important events, wouldn't they have been quick to challenge fabrications that were written in the gospel accounts? I like the way Paul says it in Acts 26 when he appears before King Agrippa. I really should back up a little bit and just read to you. Here is Paul to set the scene. Here's Paul He's been in prison for some time, and uh, he's, from time to time, he gives a defense of, of who he is and what he stands for, and he preaches the gospel. And in this chapter, Festus decides that King Agrippa, who's there, should hear what Paul has to say. And it says at this point, well, Paul begins to preach, and Festus, who doesn't really know much about all of this, interrupts Paul. And I love the way Luke describes this. And Festus interrupts Paul's defense and says, you are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. You know, he just, he can't believe Paul's talking about a dead man being raised to life and all of this. And Paul says, I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, King Agrippa, he says, the king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. That's a great phrase, isn't it? King King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. He's pressing the king now to, to turn to Christ. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul goes on. But just that little interchange there, King Agrippa doesn't agree with Festus. He doesn't say, you're right, Paul is mad, he's insane. King Agrippa has known, he's been reading the front page every day for years. He knows about all these events. They're common knowledge in Jerusalem and Israel. And Paul appeals to him, and, and Festus doesn't understand this, but Agrippa does. These things were not done in a corner. There were eyewitnesses, and there were eyewitnesses witnesses who did not support the Christian gospel. Paul's referring to the fact that the people of Jerusalem had been there. They had been in the crowds that heard and watched Jesus Christ. Keller says it this way. He says, the New Testament documents could not say Jesus was crucified when thousands of people were still alive who knew whether he was or not. If there had not been appearances after his death, if there had not been an empty tomb, if he had not made these claims and these public documents claimed they happened, 
Christianity would never have gotten off the ground. The hearers would have simply laughed at the accounts. What's Keller saying there? He's saying all of these things that the Gospels refer to, the resurrection of Christ, His death, what He taught, what He claimed, these were not secretly done. They were very public events. By contrast, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, which one of the foremost of those that we hear about is the Gospel of Thomas. These were written at least a hundred years after the New Testament documents were. One writer puts the difference between these documents this way. The Gnostic Gospels were so late that they no more challenge the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from 19th century, from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to American democracy. I have to laugh when I read that. It's like, what if somebody dug up a document from 1895 that was defending the monarchy and King George? And, uh, you know, what kind of an attack would that be on the existence of American democracy? Well, it's simply laughable. It, it was written way after the fact, a hundred or more years after the fact. And that's what this author is saying that the Gnostic Gospels are. They have no credibility at all. And so, the first answer to this objection about the historical reliability of the Bible is this. The New Testament writings were written far too early for them to be fabrications, for them to be legends. The eyewitnesses would have refuted these things. The second objection or answer to the objection that Keller gives is this. The content of the Gospels is far too counterproductive for them to be legends. And what he means by counterproductive is that the Gospel accounts are not in keeping with what you would expect church leaders to fabricate. In other words, what the Gospels say is not what somebody would dare to make up if they wanted to make Christianity look good. They just don't fit into that mold at all. What many people in our society hear in our day and buy in to some extent is that the Gospels were written by the leaders of the early church at some point to build their movement and to uh, strengthen their power and control over what Christianity was and what it taught. And this is what Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code, you can read that book and see that clearly in his historical total liehood, falsehoods and lies. But in other words, the concern that the person on the street has is this vague idea that, well, somebody in the early church made up all these accounts and these facts. They are not reliable. In other words, if this view is correct, then we would expect to see places in the Gospels where Jesus takes sides in debates that would have been important in the early church. In other words, if leaders of the early church are putting words in Christ's mouth, isn't that what you would expect? You would expect Jesus to take a stand on that, things like that. But in in actuality, that is not what we find. One example is this. One of the major controversies of the early church 
was whether or not Gentile believers needed to be circumcised. That was a controversy that racked the early church. It was a very difficult one, and we find in the book of Acts, we find that addressed. But nowhere in the gospel accounts do we find Jesus saying anything about this question. Well, why is that? Well, the most likely reason is that the gospel writers did not feel at liberty to fabricate these kinds of things and to put words in their Lord's mouth, and they didn't do that. Why would the leaders of the early Christian church have made up the story of the crucifixion if it didn't happen? Any listener of the gospel in either uh, Jewish culture or Greek culture would have automatically suspected that anyone who had been crucified was a criminal, whatever the speaker said to the contrary. Why would any Christian make up the account of Jesus asking his father in the Garden of Gethsemane if there was some way that he could get out of his mission? Or why ever make up the part on the cross when Jesus cries out that God had abandoned him? These things would have only offended or deeply confused first century prospective converts. They would have concluded that Jesus was weak and failing his God. Why invent women, Keller asks, as the first witnesses of the resurrection in a society where women were assigned such low status that their testimony was not admissible evidence in court? You see, all these have to do with this. It would, be, it would make far more sense if you were inventing stories about this to have male leaders, pillars of the church, uh, present as witnesses when Jesus came out of the tomb. Wouldn't that make sense? Well, the only plausible reason that all these incidents would be included the way they are in the form that they are is that they actually happen that way. Another question we could say is, why constantly depict the apostles, the eventual leaders of the church, as petty and jealous and almost impossibly slow-witted and in the end as cowards who who either actively or passively failed their Lord? Take Peter's denial of Christ. That's a good example of this. We, one of the accounts of this is in Mark 14. Isn't that a clear example of a lack of fabrication of a story not being made up, but of being recounted as it really occurred? Here we have in Mark 14, Peter denying the Lord three times, a very familiar story to us, and we're all used to it, so we don't stop to think about this aspect of it. But Mark even records that Peter denies Christ and objects to the point of calling down a curse in in his effort to distance himself from Christ. Now, don't we have to ask, as we just think about this one example, if the Gospels are fabricated by the leaders of the church, why would any church leader have ever included this as part of the account? Why, if it wasn't true? Why play up 
the terrible failures of their most prominent leader. No, it's things like this that give the Gospels such a ring of believability. This is what makes them so credible. Well, the third point Keller makes in answering the historical reliability question is one that I'll just mention here. I won't go into it in depth, and that is that the gospel accounts are very different from ancient mythology and epic poem and things like that in that they are too detailed. This may not be, again, something that we normally think about. In the gospel, we, we read details. The disciples fish, and it's recorded that they catch 153 fish. Or Jesus falls asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. The gospel narratives have these details in them. And Keller makes the point that this is simply not the way that legend or myth was written in that day. Detail that makes a story come alive may be part of modern fiction, and you and I are used to that. You know, we read fiction, we, we read novels, and we're used to detail being added to make a story really come alive to us. But that's a characteristic of the modern, the past three or four hundred years, the genre, the literary genre of fiction. But that is not an aspect of ancient literature, epic literature, mythological literature. Of course, I'm not an expert in this. And Keller quotes C.S. Lewis about this. Lewis, who was an expert in these things, and he says, This is not how the ancients would have written about legendary things. And so, the detail we see in the gospel is another strong evidence of its authenticity. Well, I hope that 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 hasn't been too uh, cumbersome for you, but in other words here, we're talking here about the way the New Testament is recorded. Let's go to the second objection that is often raised, and this is one that's becoming more and more prevalent in our time, and that is we can't trust the Bible culturally. You could restate this objection in these words. Someone who objects would say it maybe in this way. It seems to me that the Bible contains outmoded and regressive teachings, things like the subjugation of women or somehow supporting slavery. And so, how can I trust any thing about what the Bible says. And that's an objection that we can sympathize with. I mean, we can understand how someone who doesn't know what the Bible really says or doesn't understand what the Bible does teach about some of these things, we can see how it would be very easy to think, how can I trust what the Bible says? And Keller deals with this objection at some length. I'm not going to go again into all of that. And he does make it clear that the Bible does not condone slavery. In fact, it was Christianity that eventually overthrew slavery in the ancient world, in its ancient forms, and in in its more recent new world forms of slavery as we know it in the United States and Britain. And neither, Keller would say, does the Bible support the subjugation of women. In fact, Christianity raised the status of women in a remarkable way. And I don't have the time here to go into all the various cultural problems that people might raise and that they might feel that they have with what the Bible does teach. But I do want to emphasize one approach 
Keller makes here, and I think it's a very good one as we think about how we know what the Bible says is right or not. Keller says, one of our problems is the unexamined belief that our cultural norms and beliefs are superior to all others. It kind of relates to how we look at style. Think of it in terms of clothing we wear or the way we wear our hair, women's hairstyles and things like that. You know, don't we all look at pictures of the 80s and just naturally tend to think, ugh, you know, oh, how could they have dressed that way? How could we have dressed that way, you know? Of course, now I hear that the 80s are making a comeback. So, what will happen if that's the truth, then we'll all get used to seeing that again and we'll all think that's the normal way people should dress, right? And we can look back to the 50s, and some of us might get stuck in a certain historical cultural time. I think I'm probably stuck back in the 70s somewhere, or who knows, you know, and that's the way I probably think looks right the rest of my life. Well, we understand how that works for clothing and hairstyles and things like that, and we understand it. Well, what Keller is saying is that that problem is there in terms of our cultural norms, what our culture tends to think of as objectionable, what our culture tends to think of as right and wrong, and that when we have unexamined beliefs, when we just buy into whatever the culture says, it's natural for every culture and time to elevate their beliefs and think that they are superior to every other age and time. Of course, he goes on to say that we need to think about this because our grand children will look back to our time and they'll think, you know, granddad, how did you all, why did you all think that way? You know, it will be an outmoded line of of a norm by then. But Keller gives an interesting argument. In, In other words, he's saying, think about the fact that you have cultural objections to what the Bible says, and in a sense, you are setting yourself up as the judge about what is acceptable and what is not. And he gives this example. He takes this example and he says, imagine reading the Gospel of Mark chapter 14 and imagine two groups of people reading that. One, modern British folks, and then two, ancient Anglo-Saxons from hundreds of years ago. And they're both reading or hearing read Mark chapter 14. What would these two groups think? He says, well, let's take what, what are the two of the main points in Mark 14? And he just picks out these two things. One of them is Jesus claiming to be the Son of Man who will come with the angels at the end of the age and judge the world according to his righteousness. Verse 62. So there's one thing we find in Mark 14. Another thing we find in Mark 14 is what I've just talked about, Peter denying the Lord three times. And later in Mark 16 and also in John 21, we find Peter is forgiven, and Jesus restores him to leadership, okay? So, these are the two things. Jesus claimed to be the exclusive judge of the world, the Son of God, the angels. He's going to come with the angels and judge the world, and Peter denying the Lord, then being forgiven and restored. And Keller asks it this way, how are those two groups going to react? Well, modern British folks, not surprisingly, will probably be offended by Jesus' claim of who he is and that he's going to come and judge the world. And to them, that sounds so judgmental and exclusivistic. It's very hard for them to accept that. But 
for the modern British hearer, the idea of Peter sinning, betraying the Lord, being restored and forgiven, that's a beautiful, glorious story. They would like that. They wouldn't have any objections to that. Now, at the same time, Keller would say the ancient Anglo-Saxons have the opposite reaction. I think that's an interesting point. They wouldn't have a problem at all with Jesus, the judge, coming to judge the world. They would like information about that. They would easily accept that. But to them and their cultural sensibilities of their culture and time, it would be very offensive for them to think that in their view, what would be a disloyalty and a betrayal at Peter's level and something that should never be forgiven is forgiven. They would stumble at that. Keller is saying, okay, does that surprise us? Every culture, every time has its cultural norms and sensibilities, and essentially the Bible stands in judgment over all of these things, and the Bible's norms are the the ultimate norms, but culture tends to stumble at different things in the Bible at different times. And to stay away from Christianity, because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you, assumes that if there is a God, He shouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that belief make sense? I love the way Keller asked that. Does that make sense, that if there is a God, God really shouldn't have any views that upset you? Isn't that kind of turning things upside down? And he talks about the illustration of the movie, The Stepford Wives. And he says, think about this. If we let our unexamined beliefs undermine our confidence in the Bible, the cost might be greater than we think. And this is what he says. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. For example, if a wife is not allowed to contradict her husband, they won't have an intimate relationship. Remember the movies, there are two of them actually, the Stepford Wives. The husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross their husband's wills. A Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. So he makes the application to the Bible and to a relationship with God. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you. You won't. You'll have a step for God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So, the, an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. 
Now, we could say many more things about cultural objections to what the Bible says, and sometimes we find that those objections are not grounded, that they're not well-founded, that they're not really there. Sometimes, though, we may find that the Bible does contradict what we tend to believe or think. But I think this is a very good answer. The Bible does speak to these things, and don't we want a God who is God and is the one who stands in judgment upon us? Well, this brings me to my my final point, and that is we've answered some of these objections, but the question comes down to this. Where does a belief that the Bible is ultimately trustworthy come from? In other words, we've talked about historical reliability. We've talked about cultural objections. Maybe I've answered those questions to some degree in your minds. Maybe not. But you can believe that a document is historical, historically reliable, but you don't trust it with all your heart and mind and soul. You can believe that the works of Shakespeare are historically reliable, but we don't elevate Shakespeare's work, works to the Bible. Or you could think that a human document uh, may not or may interact with us culturally in certain ways in terms of our present culture's sensibilities, but What about the ultimate trustworthiness of God's Word? Where does that come from? And I would just like to make two brief points about this as we think about this and apply it to our lives. First of all, this comes from submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. We read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaking about the Word of God. And He tells us about the Old Testament that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And then he says that even the least stroke of a pen, he's talking about the smallest Hebrew letters and the little points that mark the vowels. He says that those will not disappear uh, by any means until everything is accomplished. Do you realize how high of a view of God's Word Jesus Christ had? It all had to be fulfilled. It was all true. And again, we read from the book of of Luke where the resurrection appearance, wouldn't you have liked to have been there when he talked about this? Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the three divisions of the Old Testament for the Jews of that day. And right before this in Luke 24, there's the part where Jesus comes along the disciples on the Emmaus Road And as they walk, Luke records, he tells them everything from the Old Testament that were fulfilled concerning the Christ and how the Christ needed to come and to be crucified and to rise again. Wouldn't you have loved to have heard that sermon? But again, this passage shows us the high view of Scripture. Jesus opens their minds, it says, so they could understand the Scriptures, these who were going to be eye witnesses. And so, our submission to Jesus Christ as Lord kind of goes along these lines. We've just seen that the New Testament is historically reliable. We can trust it to accurately record facts about Jesus Christ, about the apostles, what they taught. What do all these materials teach? They teach Jesus is Lord. They teach He rose from the dead. And if that is true, and Jesus says that the Bible is God's Word, then part of our submission to Jesus Christ as Lord 
is also that we are called to believe that the Bible is God's Word. We must submit our minds to Christ. If Jesus rose from the dead, then He is Lord, and we are called to believe Him. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, well then, let us eat and drink, Paul says, for tomorrow we die. But we believe that He did rise from the dead. And in addition to that first point, this is the second thing I would say about the trustworthiness of God's Word. Our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts and gives us an inner assurance that these are God's words. In other words, our ultimate assurance of the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of God's Word does not come from knowing what literary points I've just made about detail and things like that. It doesn't come from manuscript evidence and things like that. Those are all important in their place. But where does the ultimate assurance of the trustworthiness of God's Word come from? It comes from the work of the Spirit in our hearts. It's part of faith. It's part of believing God's Word. It's a certainty that comes as we immerse ourselves in God's Word. The Spirit works to give us a conviction that this is not the words of man. These are the words of God. I can't convince you that the Bible is God's Word. I can give you historical arguments. I can give you many proofs and many amazing facts about the nature and reliability and consistency of what the Bible says. And those are all supporting evidences that the Christian can understand and know and grow in. But no human authority can convince us that this Bible is God's Word. That's something that God does in our hearts and lives. And I love the way, just to close with this text and to think about it, Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 2, where he's talking about understanding the things of God. And he says in verse 12, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what, is, what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. That's the nature of what the Bible is, words taught by the Spirit. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man cannot and does not believe the Bible is God's Word. It's foolishness. But to the man taught by the Spirit, the person taught by the Spirit, there is an assurance, and I would say a growing assurance and certainty that the Bible is trustworthy. And the interesting thing is to see an unbeliever, and we all know this from our own experience, many of us at least, coming to that realization, coming to understand this is the very Word of God. Thanks be to His name. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do stand humbled before the power of Your Word. We tend to elevate our own culture and our own mindset, and forgive us for how we we tend to do that and 
think ourselves superior in some way, but Lord, let us be broken and humbling, humbled and tremble before your word. Thank you for giving us such a wondrous gift. Thank you for the assurance that you give us in our hearts as we read it, as we seek to take it to heart, as we seek to believe it, as we seek to obey your commands, as we seek to cherish and be, be devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would fortify us this week and help us to live for you and help us to take this sword of the Spirit which you've given to us and wield it with power in our own lives and in the lives of those around us, that Jesus' name may be praised. We ask it in his name.